hello everyone. Um, I'm sitting in Chris's office with Hannah, uh, who's going to be in charge of the slides and the recording. Uh, this is a rerun of the talk I did three days ago on Sunday morning um, in our series about prayer. Um, unfortunately, the, the sound stopped recording halfway through that. Um, and so this is the same talk all over again. So if you were there on Sunday, ignore it. Move on. You've got better things to do with your life. On the other hand, if you missed the second half, this is for you. Um, so I'm going to begin with a confession. And my confession is this. Uh, when Alice announced about four or five weeks ago that uh, the subject of the next series um, was going to be prayer, my heart sank. Um, and you may think worse of me because of that, but it's the truth. My heart sank a little bit. Um, and that's, that's because um, I struggle with prayer. Um, I'm, not a, I'm, not, uh, an, I'm not a natural prayer. It doesn't fill me with enthusiasm and excitement. Um, I'm very different from my wife. You know, I know what it's, it's like to be uh, passionate about prayer because I'm married to someone who is. I also understand because for me, it's the Bible. I'm, I love the Bible. Um, the Bible from very early on in, in my faith, the Bible spoke to me. Um, and in many ways, it's what I depend on for my relationship with God. Um, but I know other people really struggle with the Bible and they, they read it and read it and nothing happens. So I, I completely understand what it's like to be passionate about prayer, but also to really struggle. Um, there's another thing, which is that um, uh, last week, Chris was talking about this. He was introducing this series and he was he talked a lot about hope's history and hope's story and how prayer is a key theme and a, uh, one of the four main priorities for Hope Chapel as a church. Um, and uh, he went through some of the history uh, with Silas and the the. Uh, message, the relationship with the Ugandan. Um, and that's all great, but I've been at Hope for about a fortnight. Um, and so it's, it's not something that's real for me. It's not part of my story. Um, I fully appreciate and value the fact that it is Hope's story, and I don't want to belittle that in any way, but I can't say that's, that's me. Um, it might become me, but it isn't me at the moment. Um, now, I have this theory, um, and it's not based on anything, but my theory is that when it comes to prayer, there are keenies and there are people like me who struggle. Um, and my theory is that most talks about prayer are given by people who are really keen on prayer. And they kind of assume that everyone is really keen on prayer. It's, it's so obvious to them that prayer is a good thing. They assume that it's obvious to everyone. And so if anyone's struggling, then it must be because they just don't know how. They need a few tips about how to pray better. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm not a keeny. And so I need a previous question. There's a, there's a more basic question for me, which is why? Why should I pray? Why should I bother? And so that is why, uh, that's what I want to ask, ask, that's the question I want to answer this morning. Why pray? Um, 
And But it's important to say at the start, I am speaking to people who need that question answered. I, I'm speaking to people like me, people who struggle, people who aren't natural prayers. Um, and what I want to do is come up with the, the best argument I can for why we should pray. Um, my best biblical argument. Uh, now, if you are a keeny, if you're a natural prayer, if you're a prayer enthusiast, you're welcome to eavesdrop. But this talk isn't aimed at you. It's aimed at people who struggle. It's, it's to people like me and it's on behalf of people like me. OK, so here's my passage. This is John 15, uh, starting at the first verse. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Um, this is an important passage. Uh, it's really the heart and the, in many ways, the climax of John's gospel. Um, it's it's part of Jesus, um, his his words to his disciples on their last night together before he was arrested and tried, um, and in and so it's it's the stuff he wants them to remember. It's his key messages to his disciples. But it's also the, the heart of John's gospel because it picks up so many threads and themes that, that John has, has set running in the earlier chapters. He, he kind of draws them all together into these three chapters, uh, 14, 15 and 16. They're known as the farewell discourse. Um, and it's, it's kind of the, the summary of Jesus' message to his disciples. So it's important. And he uses, he, he builds... He builds it around this metaphor, um, this this striking metaphor of what a relationship with him looks like. Um, some of you might know Cat Hall, and Cat is a keen gardener. I'm I'm a keen gardener, not as keen as Cat. But a few years ago, she invited me to go on an apple grafting workshop. We spent a morning um, learning how to graft apple trees. Um, now, this is grafting, uh, if I can have the next slide. Thanks, Hannah. So, 
when when you're grafting something like an apple tree or a vine, because the same technique has been used for hundreds and thousands of years with with growing vines, what you do is you you take a branch from one plant and you graft it, you join it to the the trunk and the roots of another plant. Um, so you take the uh, what's what's known as the scion. Um, the, the branch and you, you trim the base of it so it becomes a really sharp wedge and then you put a notch in the top of the, the rootstock as it's known so that the trunk and the roots that are in the ground and you insert the wedge and the scion the branch into the rootstock and if you bind them together and if it works then the um, the branch begins to pick up all the nutrients, the sap, the life from the rootstock, and it begins to grow. Um, over time, if I can have the next slide, please, Hannah, they become one plant. Um, two separate plants become one. And so this, this picture shows uh, what it looks like after a year or two. They, they've kind of joined together. You can still see the join, but effectively, they become one plant. Um, now, why do why do growers do this? Apple growers or, or grape growers? Uh, they do it in order to combine the properties of the two different plants. Um, often, the, the the branch which is grafted in from the top that is um, has a certain a fruit of a certain flavour. It's it's good flavour, and that's the the kind of fruit that you're looking for. But often those kind of plants they might be susceptible to disease, or they might um, produce a really small crop, and so you want a healthier plant or one that produces a bigger crop, and so you graft it into a different rootstock, which can can provide the properties you're looking for. And so that's why they do it. Um, it's, it's interesting. Maybe it's reading too much into the metaphor. But, but the growers do that in order to combine the best of both. You get the best of both plants if you combine them together. Um, now it's interesting. Jesus chooses this metaphor as a metaphor for the relationship that he invites us into to have with him he, he wants it to be that close that so that it's it's really becoming one um, that's the picture he presents so um, why pray I've got three things I want to draw out of this passage to to answer the question why pray and here's the first one um, when we read the gospels we get glimpses of Jesus' relationship with his father. And you get the sense that everything that Jesus says and does, the, the way he lives, the way he behaves, um, that his priorities in any situation, all of that stuff is drawn from his relationship with his father. Um, for example, we notice that He's, he's very keen to withdraw, to get away, to be by himself uh, in order to spend time with his father. Uh, it seems to be really valuable time for him 
Um, he needs to return to that place from which he draws his strength. Um, a bit like uh, a, a branch that's grafted in draws its nutrients, draws its life from the rootstock. He also seems to have an incredible clarity about what the father wants in any situation, the father's purpose, and what the father's will is in any situation. He seems to just know the right thing to do in any situation. He has an uncanny knowledge of the people that he meets. If you think about the story of the, the woman at the well, how did he know all that stuff about her background? It's like he's got uh, someone who, who knows everything whispering in his ear, letting him know, inf keep, uh, informing him about the people he meets. He has this incredible intimate connection with his father and that's the place that he lives from. And it's interesting that if you think about the metaphor he gives us for the relationship that he wants us to have with him, that's a, also a very, very good description, a very good picture of the relationship that he has with his father. Now let's have a look at the next two. So this is uh, verses 9 and 10 from the passage I read out. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, if we think about it, that is an incredible invitation. What he's saying is that the love that he experiences from his Father is exactly the same as the love that he wants us to experience from him. And it's a repeating theme throughout these three chapters. You build up this picture of how the relationship that Jesus has with his father is the model, is the, the kind of prototype of the relationship that he wants us to have with him. And it's that it's it reinforces this picture of the of grafting, grafting of uh, of a vine. Um, they're so close that they become one. Now that's an incredible invitation, and it it he as he unpacks, he he, he drops little clues to what it might look like. He talks about the joy you may have noticed, the joy that he experiences in his father, is the same as the joy that he wants us to experience in him. He talks about the words, that the Father's words remaining in him and, and Jesus' words remaining in us. He talks about the knowledge and the stuff that the Father has revealed to him and how in turn he reveals the same knowledge to us. In other words, the, this, this metaphor, this picture, applies to both Jesus' relationship with his Father and, his, uh, and our relationship with him. Um, and that is an incredible invitation. It's an inv invitation into an incredible level of intimacy. Um, when, when you become a Christian, people say, when, you, when you're struggling to understand what this thing is, people say, 
Um, it's about a relationship with God, which is true. It is about a relationship with God, but it's not very helpful because relationships come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. It doesn't tell us much about the kind of relationship that um, the kind of relationship with God that being a Christian involves. Um, do we realise what kind of relationship is on offer? Do we realise what the invitation is? Um, when we read the Old Testament we, and we look at Israel's relationship with God, how, what did it look like? Well, the presence of God lived in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And the way, the, the, uh, the extent to which Israel could get close to God was that the chief priest, once a year, after a real rigmarole of kind of cleaning and ceremonial washings and putting on special robes, the chief priest was allowed to crawl into the Holy of Holies on one day each year. But they, they tied a rope around his, his waist so that they could pull him back out again. No one else would have to go into that space to recover the body uh, if the presence of God happened to kill him. That was as close as Israel could get to the presence of God. But that's completely um, kind of blown out of the water by Jesus' relationship with his father. Um, there was a level of intimacy and closeness that would have been unthinkable to the to people in Israel, that Jesus could get that close, have that level of intimacy, that level of understanding with his father. Um, Jesus enjoyed God, God's presence all the time and he lived from God's presence. And now he invites us to join in too. Just as he was grafted into the Father, we're invited to be grafted into him. Um, and the trouble is, I think, it sounds too good to be true. Um, let me ask you this. If that was possible, if it was possible to have a relationship with Jesus, like Jesus had with his Father, would that be a good enough reason to pray? Would that be a good enough incentive to remain in him? I'd suggest it would. I mean, when, when I think about that concept of getting, having that level of intimacy with God, everything in me says, yes, that's something I want. The question is, is it achievable? Is it actually a realistic promise? Because that's what he seems to be offering in this, in this passage. Does, is it a genuine offer? Is it possible to remain in Jesus like Jesus remained in the Father? Or is he exaggerating? Because if he's speaking the truth, I'd say that's a pretty good reason to pray. That's the first part of my answer. Um, here's the second reason for prayer. Next slide, please, Hannah. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Um, I mentioned I went on this, this apple grafting workshop with Cat Hall. Um, and the truth is, 
um, cat grafting experiment worked. And she produced an apple tree. And as far as I know, it's still producing apples to this day. The one I did failed. The graft didn't take. The branch that was stuck into the top of the rootstock, it just didn't live. It didn't grow. It didn't do anything. So I threw it away. Because um, those are the only two options. It either works or it doesn't work. And in the same way, this passage in John 15 is shockingly either or. Either you remain in Jesus and bear much fruit, or you don't remain in Jesus, you don't bear much fruit, and so, well, what are you worth if you're not bearing fruit? Now, the trouble is, I assume, I assume that all of my efforts for God, the stuff I do for God, but kind of independent of him, my own ideas, my own efforts, the stuff that I'm doing for God, I assume that that stuff is actually quite valuable. It actually has quite a lot of worth. I assume that for most people, there's a kind of middle ground where there are people like me who are trying to do stuff for God um, and it's actually quite valuable. There are some people who are even more dedicated than I am who seem to have a closer relationship with God than I do, and they may produce a little bit more. And then there are some shocking people who make no effort at all, who produce nothing. But those are the two extremes. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. We're, we're, we're doing our best, and so our efforts have value. But Jesus is having none of it. Um, Asking me how valuable my efforts are is a little bit like asking the branch how valuable the branch's contribution is. You need to ask the farmer. It's the farmer who decides whether it's working or not. It's the farmer who decides whether the fruit is good fruit. And what does he say? He says in, this, in this, these verses, apart from me, you can do nothing, which is shocking. So if the question, uh, or it's, it's interesting that w when I ask myself the question, why should I pray? I answer it from my own perspective. Um, and I assume that the question means, what's in it for me? What do I get if I invest all this effort in praying? What I don't ask, or what, the, what that approach doesn't ask is, what does the Father want? What does the Father want from us? What's his purpose for our lives? Uh, what kind of fruit is he looking for? Um, what kind of person remains in Jesus? What kind of pe person prays? I think ultimately it's someone who's dependent. And if they're dependent, that means they're humble. They accept, there's someone who accepts that their own efforts have little value, and that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And I just wonder whether that's the aim of this shocking metaphor, the, this idea of something not producing fruit, something that doesn't produce fruit being thrown away. 
I wonder, I wonder whether it's to wake us up and to shock us into the humility that realises that on our own we can do nothing so that we start to depend on him. Um, here's the third point, Hannah, if you please. So this is verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Um, I find it hard to read this verse without thinking of Tony Blair. Um, have you re- have you noticed um, have you noticed what happens when successful politicians kind of reach the end of their term of office? They've achieved everything they set out to achieve. They've worked and worked and worked. They've made all sorts of sacrifices in order to get to one of the the high offices uh, of state. Um, they reach the very top. They've achieved everything they set out to achieve. They are successful people. What happens to them? They become obsessed by their legacy. In other words, will any of this last? Will this last? All that effort, all of that struggle, all of those sacrifices, the question that grows on them and dawns on them as their time in office begins to come to an end is, Have I made a lasting difference? And the trouble is, for them, the problem is, that is something that's out of their hands. They've done everything they could, but they cannot control the lasting impact of everything they've done. I think it's very revealing. They work all their lives to achieve a certain thing, and then they realise they can't control the lasting impact of what they've done. There's something else that all the way through this passage and and this metaphor, um, Jesus talks about fruit. The the key thing that the the outcome, the purpose of everything is to produce good fruit. But it's quite vague. What is this fruit? Um, What is this fruit that he's talking about? And my first reaction on reading this and thinking about the fruit that Jesus is asking us to produce, is he needs to be a bit clearer. What is it I'm trying to achieve here? What is it he wants me to focus on? What is the stuff that he counts as good fruit? But in a way, I think that's the point. It's fruit. It's not an achievement. It's not something we work for ourselves. It's a natural product Uh, It's the outcome, it's the result of being a healthy branch that's grafted into the right rootstock. It's not something we choose. Um, We might not even be aware that we're producing this fruit. Uh, It's a natural, organic outcome from being grafted in. Which also means it's probably different for different people. Because we're all made differently. We have different gifts and we're called to do different things by God. Um, So a a Cabernet Sauvignon plant doesn't produce kumquats. What it produces 
is a, is a result of what it is, of who it is, you might say. So just like our, our legacy and how long the legacy lasts is not something we can control, the nature of the fruit is something we can't control either. It's not up to us. It's not something we choose. It's something that happens when we're grafted in. So here's the question. We can't control the nature of the fruit we produce. We can't control how long it has an impact for, how long it lasts. Who is in control of those things? Who controls, who chooses the fruit we produce and how long it lasts? So if we can't control that, what can we control? The only thing we can control, according to this metaphor, is whether or not we choose to remain in him. That's the choice we have. That's the invitation he makes. And that's the command that he gives. So it's obviously something we need to choose to do, to remain in him. If we remain in him, then the fruit we produce and how long it lasts is in his hands. It's not up to us. It occurs to me that to pray is to acknowledge that he's in control of this stuff and we're not. Uh, but only a humble person will do that. Um, thinking about lasting fruit also makes me think about um, a youth group that I was involved with almost 30 years ago. Um, it was led by a couple called Annie and Silas. Um, and it was, it was quite a small group. There were about 30 teenagers. And uh, in the four or five years that I was part of it, it grew a little bit, but not much. But it was never a kind of big, dramatic um, success in the sense of it, never, it was never widely known. There were never any uh, kind of tangible, um, big successes. But the striking thing now, when I look back, is just how long those teenagers have kept on producing, have kept on pursuing Jesus. And I, I think of the, the, the people who are involved in that group, and nearly 30 years later, the, the proportion of them who are still um, pursuing Jesus, leading all sorts of different stuff, um, having a, a, a rich relationship with God, and producing their own fruit 30 years on, is quite astonishing. And, and I also remember that, at that time, the two main themes that Silas and Annie emphasised were prayer and encouragement. Those were the two things we focused on again and again and again. We encouraged the teenagers to pray and we, we encouraged them. And, yeah, that, it, it just seems to resonate with this idea that it's the that the fruit that we're um, that Jesus is looking for the fruit that we're talking about here is different from the kind of fruit that we produce through our own efforts. Um, the the fruit Jesus is looking for is out of our control. I also think back to some of the other projects I've been involved with, 
uh, in my life, that at the time we thought we were changing the world. We were going to do this and this and this, and the impact we were going to have was going to be amazing. And pretty much all of those projects have sunk without trace. It's very difficult to say now if there was any lasting impact. But that stuff is out of our hands. So, finally, um, I know what you may be thinking. Um, as we've looked at this passage about remaining in Jesus, um, as we've looked at uh, the arguments uh, for why we should pray, um, I think some of you may be thinking, well, Bill, you fudged it a bit. Um, because the passage doesn't mention prayer once. The passage is about remaining in Jesus. And what I was really looking for was a stronger message that, um, that uh, specifically mentioned prayer. I wanted to hear a message about the importance of prayer. And the truth is, I don't care. I really don't care. And you might say, well, I ought to care. I ought to be persuading people to redouble their efforts to pray, to pray. but I don't. Um, and the thing is, I'm 58. Um, and the, the argument that I ought to do something doesn't really work as well as it used to. In fact, if you tell me I ought to do something, I'm more likely to push back and do the opposite. Um, and the thing, thing to remember is, the people I'm talking to here are the people who find it difficult to pray. The people who um, have tr maybe have tried and tried and tried and got frustrated and just aren't interested anymore. Um, if you think I should be emphasising a message that people ought to pray, then you're in the category that ought to just be eavesdropping. Because um, th the thing is this, I've tried praying because I ought to pray. For a long time, I tried to pray because I was told to pray. And the effect it had was this. What happened was I would try and pray and pretty soon I'd be asking, am I doing it right? Is this working? Am I doing the right thing? Am I actually praying? Is God there? Or isn't he there? Have I done enough? Or do I need to do a bit more? Is it working? Do I feel God? Do I feel different? Is it having an effect? And also, am I doing it right? Because there are so many, there's so much different advice about how you should pray. Um, someone was talking to me last week about Ignatian spirituality. Maybe I should switch to a more Ignatian model of prayer. Um, and what I noticed was, when I was trying to pray because I ought to pray, when I was doing it in order to become someone who prayed, um, the end result was I focused far more on praying, on the activity, than on the person I was praying to. And in fact, the result was I ended up far more focused on myself than I was on Jesus. Um, it became a kind of introspective activity. All I was thinking about was the process of praying. 
And I think that's the danger when, when prayer becomes an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Um, I think the paradox is if you want people to pray, particularly people who find it difficult, you've got to start by saying, forget about praying. Make the action of prayer less valuable in order to discover the value of prayer. That might sound strange. Um, let me kind of tell you what I mean. Um, if, like me, you've always struggled to pray, then forget prayer. If someone says you ought to pray, then ignore them. And instead, renew your efforts to remain in Jesus, whatever that means, whatever it takes. Just observe the stuff that draws you closer to him, that uh, enables you to feel his presence more, um, and try and do more of that stuff. Do whatever it takes. Um, if it's riding a bicycle round the park, singing Katy Perry songs, then do more of that stuff. Um, for me, th this is what I noticed in my own life. Um, I'd always loved classical music. Um, I enjoyed classical music. I loved it. It seemed to feed me. Um, it made me feel... Uh, I think the best way of describing it is it made me feel joy. It made me feel peace. Um, and for a long time, I thought it was the music that was doing that. Um, and to a certain extent, it is. And, but because I felt joy and peace listening to a certain kind of music... I would do more of it. But it was only, it's only much more recently that I began to put two and two together and think, now hang on a minute, why do I experience joy and peace uh, listening to a certain kind of music? And I think what, uh, this may be fanciful, but I think what's going on is what I'm appreciating in the music is beauty. And there's one person who ultimately is the creator of all beauty. And that's God. And it was like, when, when I was appreciating the beauty of the music, he was also alongside me appreciating the beauty of the music. Um, and I, I began to put two and two together and realised that the, the activity of listening to the music was drawing me closer to him. But once I understood that, once I acknowledged that, then it became far... It was kind of almost automatic to recognise his presence when I was listening to the music. Um, it was something that I consciously... Um, started doing with him. We were together listening to the music. And once you're in that place, it's just natural to communicate. It's, na you don't have, it's not a deliberate choice. It's natural when you're side by side doing something to, to uh, remark on something that occurs to you or to hear something. Um, I was talking with Joseph after the talk, and he talked about active, there are certain activities that he finds help him to remain in Jesus. And I think that's also true, that when we use our gifts, 
when we're doing what he um, has given us to do, that is something that places us alongside him, that places us in his presence. And once we cotton on that it's drawing us near to him, then communication naturally follows. Um, or at least it's the environment in which natural communication is likely to take place. So, that's my recommendation. Notice the stuff that places you in his presence and do more of it. Because what will ha if you do that, what will happen? You will discover his presence more and more. You will be filled with joy, peace, a sense of love. And communication will naturally flow. And the more you do that, the more you'll discover other things. Once you recognise the pattern, you'll recognise it in all sorts of different parts of your life. And before you know it, you will be praying more and more. Um, but it's a natural outcome of remaining in him, doing the stuff that places us in his presence. Um, finally, if there's a place to start, here's one exercise, which is sit in his presence for five minutes. And do, and, but that's all. Don't say anything. Don't expect to hear anything. Just take five minutes and internally, in, in your heart and mind, turn to him and remember that he's there. And just sit with him, listening to him not say anything and not saying anything back. And see what happens. Just enjoy his presence, not saying anything, not hearing anything for five minutes. And see what grows as a result of that. I reckon if you do that five minutes every day for a week, you will find something beginning to grow. That's it. Um, if you have any questions, um, if you want to follow up on anything I've said, if you're horribly offended because I haven't emphasised the importance of prayer enough, then please come and have a chat. Thank you. Bye.